Welcome back to the Hemingway List, Book 4, Chapter 9 of War and Peace. This chapter seems rather short and sharp compared to some more drawn-out chapters. What do you think Tolstoy... Sorry, why do you think Tolstoy, Tolstoy is choosing to write like this? What do you think of Lisa as a character? Did you find her shallow like Andre did? What did you make of Andre's reaction to her death? He was fixated on the expression on her face. Do you think this is his imagination? In the notes of my edition, it says that the Russian Orthodox ritual of cutting some of a baby's hair off and pressing it into wax is an omen for the future. In this case, Nikolai's hair was a good omen. Any predictions about this, especially in the light of the grim circumstances surrounding his birth? Ryan Dundev says, There's something tragic about her expression that we see again and again here. There's a presumption of shallowness that all parties have participated in, including us as the reader. We have not looked into her inner thoughts and feelings, but have taken as true that she is simply shallow and uninteresting. The depth of her expression suggests to them that, and to us that we did not give due credence to her humanity. We never got to hear what she may have had to say as the reader, just as the characters never listened, and now she's dead, alone, unseen and unheard. Yeah, I guess maybe... I feel like Tolstoy maybe um, kept her character a little bit of a mystery. Well, probably for a few reasons. First of all, I guess she's not, you know, there's tiers of main characters. Andre is one of the main characters, you know, in the, in he's probably one of four. If you had to narrow it down to the four main characters of this book, he'd be one of them. Then if you had to narrow it down to like 20, um, you'd start to see characters like Dolokhov and um, Old Man Bolkonsky, you know, more and more, you know, there's a lot of sort of second-tier characters. There's a huge cast of really important characters who are based, they're main characters, but they're like second mains, I guess. But I don't think Lisa would fit into that. So I think we see her, we only see a little bit of her because she's just not one of the main characters. I think that's what it is. Uh, and there's a lot of characters that would fit into that category. Um, there's Helena so far. Um, there's like, you know, Boris. There's um, Petya, the younger Rostov brother. There's a lot of them. Um, so I think that's one reason. I think another reason, though, is because sort of um, Andre as a main character, one of his early struggles is that he can't engage with his wife in any meaningful kind of conversation. He finds her interests to him are, dis are not interesting. And so to him, it's quite shallow. And I think that Tolstoy keeps her a little bit in the dark because um, Andre doesn't really respect her opinions, you know. Maybe it's to sort of illustrate that that like now that she's gone it's like it's too late to get to know her I don't know uh, that guy you know said it's like Tolstoy knew that we in the future would be able to guess maybe Andre isn't dead trope so he threw in an even bigger twist into the end of the chapter what a gut punch and to make it worse it seems that she died knowing that she was an outcast to everyone around her even her own husband yeah that is really sad how will this change Andre especially when he is fully cognizant of his mistreatment of her. I also assume he is done with war, 
now that he has a child to raise and since he was so gravely injured before. I feel like Lisa's greatest fear would to die an insignificant death. She loves to be among the people, you know, and to take her out into the countryside and away from all her society was right from the start of the book. It was talked about how sad that is for her because, you know, she's so wants to be in con- connected with her people. So there's another, another thing of like, we she dies before we get to know her and it's almost like, all she would want is for us to get to know her. We know that much, but it wasn't able to happen. It kind of adds a little extra sadness onto the top of it. The Qureshi said, So far it's interesting that the death of the old Count and now Lisa happened in peace, and everyone we watched go to war made it out alive. That is interesting. Things could change in the future. I've never read this before. Wow, that's a good observation. I like that. Oh, gosh. Oh, a lot of comments on today's chapter. I suppose it was a, a bit of a gut punch of a chapter. Um, Kara Kickhouse said, I recently read A Swim in a Pond in the Rain at George by George Sanders, Saunders, sorry, a book where he analyzes a bunch of Russian short stories. His note on Master and Man is that Tolstoy gives great care to the death scene of an aristocrat while giving us nothing on the death of a peasant. When you compare them beat for beat, the difference is stark and probably Belize classism. I can't help but remember the evocative description of the sky during Andre's prolonged brush with death. Then comes Lisa, who only has a scream off stage and done. I think it's clear which death Tolstoy sees as noble and worthy in our, of our attention and who dies strictly to serve the development of other characters. Seems lazy, Tolstoy. You could give us a bit more. I don't think... Um, I don't think lazy is a term I would use for Tolstoy. I think it's as I was saying before, I think there was a reason why he did not permit us to get to know Lisa. And I think it's because maybe I'm leaning more and more towards what I said now about she's characterized by someone who's been taken away from her people and unable to socialize and make her stamp on the world. And maybe that's why even we weren't able to get to know her a little bit. Also, I think it's because, on like I said, Andre is a main character, and Lisa isn't, you know. So not everyone, I guess, has the same treatment in that stage, in that um, respect. Could be, although you know, we'll see. Minor characters have longer scenes and shorter scenes, so maybe, yeah, maybe you're right. Who knows? Now I want to keep reading what I want to do chapter 10 I'm just going to keep going straight on with it because it's late goes like this Rostov's share in Dolokhov's duel with Bezukhov was hushed up by the efforts of the old count and instead of being degraded to the ranks he was he as he expected he was appointed an adjutant to the governor general of Moscow as a result, he could not go to the country with the rest of the family, but was kept all summer in Moscow by his new duties. Dolokhov recovered, and Rostov became very friendly with him during his convalescence. Dolokhov lay ill at his mother's, who loved him passionately and tenderly, and old Maya, Mary Ivanovna, who had grown fond of Rostov for his friendship to her Fedja, often talked to him about her son. Yes, Count, she would say. He is too noble and pure-souled for our present depraved world, no one love no one now loves virtue. It seems like a reproach to everyone. Now tell me, Count, was it right, was it honourable of Bezikov and Fedja with his noble spirit loved him and even now 
never says a word against him. Those pranks in Petersburg when they played some tricks on a policeman, didn't they do it together? And there Bezikov got off scot-free, while Fedja had to bear the whole burden on his shoulders. Fancy that he had to go through. It's true, he has been reinstated, but how could they fail to do that? I think there were not many such gallant sons of the fatherland out there as he, and now this jewel. Have these people no feeling or honour? Knowing him to be an only son, to challenge him and shoot so straight, it's well, God had mercy on us. And what is it for? Who doesn't have intrigues nowadays? Why, if he was so jealous, as I see things, he should have shown it sooner. But he lets it go on for months, and then to call him out, reckoning on Fedger, not fighting because he owed him money. What baseness, what meanness. I know you understand, Fedger, my dear Count, that, believe me, is why I am so fond of you. Few people do understand him. He is such a lofty, heavenly soul. Dolokhov himself, during this convalescence, spoke to Rostov in a way no one would have expected of him. I know people consider me a bad man, he said. Let them. I don't care a straw about anyone but those I love. But those I love, I love so that I would give my life for them. And the others I'd throttle if they stood in my way. I have an adored and priceless mother and two or three friends, you among them. And as for the rest, I only care about them in so far as they are harmful or useful. And most of them are harmful, especially the women. Yes, dear boy, he continued. I have met loving, noble, high-minded men, but I have not yet met any women, countesses or cooks, who were not venal. I have not yet met that divine purity and devotion I look for in women. If I found such a one, I'd give my life for her, but those... And he made a gesture of contempt. And believe me, if I still value my life, it is only because I still hope to meet such a divine creature who will regenerate, purify, and elevate me. But you don't understand it. Oh yes, I quite understand, said Rostov, who was under his new friend's influence. In the autumn, the Rostovs returned to Moscow. Early in the winter, Denisov also came back and stayed with them. The half, the first half of the winter in 1806, was Nicholas, which Nicholas Rostov spent in Moscow, was one of the happiest, merriest times for him and the whole family. Nicholas brought many young men to his parents' house. Vera was a handsome girl of twenty. Sonia, a girl of sixteen, with all the charm of an opening flower. Natasha, half grown up and half child, was now childishly amusing, now girlishly enchanting. At that time in the Rostovs' house there prevailed an amorous atmosphere characteristic of homes where they are very young and very charming girls. Every young man who came to the house, seeing those impressionable smiling young faces, smiling probably at their own happiness, feeling the eager bustle around him, and hearing the fitful bursts of song and music and the inconsequent but friendly prattle of young girls ready for anything and full of hope, experienced the same feeling, sharing with the young folk of the Rostovs' household a readiness to fall in love and an expectation of happiness. Among the young men introduced by Rostov was one run one of the first was Dolokhov, whom everyone in the house liked, except Natasha. She almost quarrelled with her brother about him. She insisted that he was a bad man, and that in the duel with Bezikov, Pierre was right and Dolokhov wrong, and further that he was disagreeable and unnatural. There's nothing for me to understand, she cried, out with a resolute self-will. He is wicked and heartless. There now, I like your Denisov, though he is a rake and all that. I still like, I like him. So, you see, I do understand, but I don't know how to put it. With this one, everything is calculated, and I don't like that. But Denisov... No, Denisov is quite different, replied Nicholas, re implying that even Denisov was nothing compared to Dolokhov. 
You must understand what a soul there is in Dolokhov. You should see him with his mother. What a heart. Well, I don't know about that, but I'm uncomfortable with him. And do you know he has fallen in love with Sonia? What nonsense. I'm certain of it. You'll see. Natasha's prediction proved true. Dolokhov, who did not usually care for the society of ladies, began to come often to the house, and the question for whose sake he came, though no one spoke of it, was soon settled. He came because of Sonia, and Sonia, though she would never have dared to say so, knew it and blushed scarlet every time Dolokhov appeared. Dolokhov often dined at the Rostovs, never missed a performance at which they were present, and went to the Iagul's balls for young people, which the Rostovs always attended. He was appointedly attentive to Sonia, who, and looked at her in such a way that not only could she not bear his glances without colouring, but even the old Countess and Natasha blushed when they saw his looks. It was evident that this strange strong man was under the irresistible influence of the dark, graceful girl who loved another. Rostov noticed something in Do- new in Dolokhov's relations with Sonia. He did not but he did not explain to himself what these new relations were. There's always in love. They're always in love with someone, he thought of Sonia and Natasha, but he was not as much at ease with Sonia and Dolokhov as before and was less frequently at home. In the autumn of 1806, everybody had again begun talking of the war with Napoleon with even greater warmth than the year before. Orders were given to raise recruits, ten men in every thousand for the regular army, and besides this, nine men in every thousand for the militia. Everywhere Bonaparte was anathematized, and in Moscow nothing but the coming war was talked of. For the Rostov family, the whole interest of these preparations for war lay in the fact that Nicholas would not hear of remaining in Moscow and would and only awaited the termination of Denisov's furlough after Christmas to return with him to the regiment. His approaching departure did not prevent his amusing himself, but rather gave zest to his pleasures. He spent the greater part of this time away from home at dinners, parties and balls. All right, there we go. Another chapter for you. Dolokhov's got a crush on Sonia. Interesting. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.